Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history, a moment we are living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and more powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change, it's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arts of Winning is brought to you by Sterling Strother and Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this era presents us with. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. So welcome to podcast number six of the Art of Winning Tennis Revolution. And today we're going to be exploring the concept of stability and continuity in tennis. And that's based on chapter four of the Art of Winning Tennis book. And if you haven't read that yet, you know where to go, www.artofwinningtennis.com. We will look at why your attitude to error can determine your success in tennis. And we will aim to offer a completely new perspective on error and how changing your attitude towards it will allow you to reap big rewards. Sterling, as we dive into this really exciting topic, what I wanted to do was ask you for a definition of competitive intelligence, because I think that's a very good place to start. So competitive intelligence is the ability to acquire as well as apply knowledge and skills. So here at The Art of Winning, this includes acquiring and diagnosing error from match data analytics. And so then we can identify which competitive intelligence game to play that corresponds with those diagnosed errors. So that's probably the simplest way to say it at this point. Good. No, thank you. Uh, That, I think, is a very good place to start. How does competitive intelligence contribute to a player's success in tennis? So I really believe that it it will only contribute success if the player can identify properly from data analytics the context of their errors 
and then rehearse the adjustments on the practice court. What are some examples of competitive intelligence in action on the tennis court? Okay, so let's say I look at my data mm-hmm. and f- from a recent match, and I notice that I'm making errors on my S1, the first shot after the, my serve. So specifically, I'm making a high percentage of S1 errors from the ad court or when I, pl- when I begin the point from the ad court. And so what I can do now is go to the practice court mm-hmm. and I can play, say, the first strike point game, but I'll, just, I'll adjust it a bit and start every point from the ad court. So I'll have someone or even myself map how successful I am playing my S1 as as well, and if I'm even able to win the first point game versus my opponent. My opponent. Now, this remember this is starting every point from ad court because I took the data. I was making a lot of S1 errors when I was starting the point from half court. So I'm I'm going I'm taking this to the practice court now. So. If I don't have an opponent, what I can do is I can have my coach, I can serve, my coach can either feed the return in with another ball or they can play my return off my serve. And then I can play my S1 to a particular zone of the court and I can do this for points. And so there's a few ways. And this is what I love about the first strike um, games and the momentum games, which makes up all of the competitive intelligence games, is you can modify them based on the knowledge you've acquired from your match data. And this, to me, is a very fluid and a complete way to build your competitive intelligence. And so I've entitled this section of the podcast, Understanding Error in Tennis. Sterling, how has the perception of errors in tennis evolved over time? So I think the perception of error has evolved some, but I think it can only evolve with data analytics. Yeah. Without current data of your match play, you as a player and even as a coach will look at error in a traditional manner, which means you'll focus, you'll continue to focus on the technical and the physical elements when you're trying to reduce error. And so, yes, The perception of error is evolving, but only because of how data analytics is able to to specifically identify error within each point throughout the match. Yeah, I think a good word to use here would be as well, because I agree with what you said, would be if error is located because it's stable in the sense that we we know it does happens around um, a particular specific event. Maybe the one that you mentioned. Maybe it's the one, the S1 on the ad court. And we can get even more specific and more specific. But yeah, so locating the errors. But why then, if we know how we are building on that more scientific way of looking at it, why then are errors seen as random, invasive and chaotic in traditional tennis? So the main reason that error is viewed as random and evasive and chaotic is that we are responding to error with an emotional reaction first. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this emotional reaction 
is the lack of an objective and contextual data of the match. And so when error isn't mapped with respect to point rally length, for example, it's almost impossible to recall when the error occurred within the point because you don't have the point rally length. And so you don't know when the error occurred. You also don't know where it occurred on the court because you're not mapping data in that way. So then error is seen as a chaotic event when you don't have this data. And it happens, this chaotic event can happen randomly throughout the point or all the points, right? So that's why it's it's seen as evasive and chaotic because it's it's re, you re respond to it emotionally first instead of from an objective point of view looking at the data in front of us. Why then is it important to understand the nature of errors in the game? Okay, this is a this is an interesting one. The nature of error is not it's neither chaotic or random. It is localized which means error happens more frequently in certain times in the point than others. And when you map match data, you start to see this. You, don't, you start to see error is it's racking up in this section of the point or this section of the point. First strike, patterns of play, send and rally. Those are the three phases of a point. So the majority of errors occur inside of four total shots between you and your opponent. Yeah. So you will make an error within the first two shots of the point about 50 to 75, about 50 to 70% of the time. One of, one of you, you or your opponent. And so the next phase of the point is five to eight shots between you and your opponent, right? So errors will occur here frequently as well. And so that would be the, the second two shot sequence, five to eight for you. Right. So I have my first shot sequence, which is two shots. I have my next two shots, which make up five to eight. So the first two shot sequence is called the first strike sequence. And then the second two shot sequence is called patterns of play. Now, here's something interesting. We know 80 to 90 percent of all the points occur within these two phases of the point. So once again, though, you will not come to understand this statistic if you're not mapping out your match play points. You'll overlook how many points end in the first strike and patterns of play sections of each point. So the word understanding actually means having insight or good judgment. And so how can you understand the nature of error without meaning meaningful match data, right? You will lack good judgment and insight without match data. You'll try to improve you'll try to improve with guessing what needs to be improved. Your guess, guessing is the absence of good judgment and guessing is the absence of understanding. That is a great way to draw that section to an end, Sterling. And thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's something worth, definitely worth thinking about. We, we will be returning to that point. And it's a recurrent theme, isn't it, throughout what, we, what we've been studying. So the third section, now, I, I wanted to look at the phenomena of ISM in traditional tennis culture. Um, it's not called that. It's called a lot, several other things. It goes by other names. Uh, it's very well disguised. But the, both the phenomena itself, or what, you know, what we would call 
going ISM, which I know you're about to explain, and the way it appears and is presented in tennis, um, create a situation that is really, it happens almost every point you listen to the commentary of the matches because we've got, um, well, you just listen, you pick up the tennis commentary and, and it tends, it, it, it's got an ISM bias in it. Can you explain what ISM is? And would you agree that it's an approach or is it simply done unconsciously? Well, I think it can be done. I think it's both. What's interesting is you, you said that traditional tennis culture disguises individual shot making with different terms. Let's throw out a few. Yeah. See if they register. If they register with us, how about this? Trying to hit a winner. I need to hit a winner here. That's ISM. How about this? Just play one shot at a time. One shot at a time. Play one shot at a time. Stay on one shot. That's ISM. Uh, how about this? You need to end the point here. This is the ball to end the point on. That's ISM. And so it is. I mean, traditional tennis culture is clever because it's made up of collective minds over, you know, decades of coaching, and decades of playing and decades of looking at the game, right? So individual shot making is when you play one shot at a time and that's the end of your focus. So it starts over one shot at a time, it begins with one shot, it ends with one shot. There is very little expectation attached to focusing on one shot at a time. There is the absence of expectation when you're playing one shot at a time. Whoa, yeah. Yeah, now watch this. This is so good, okay? Yeah. Yes, you are in the moment. However, you are missing the next part of the moment, the response to your shot. The present moment does not last one second. According to the neuroscientists around the globe, the present moment actually lasts between two and 2.5 seconds. So playing one shot at a time is only the first half of the present moment or one second. ISM is the biggest threat to winning a tennis match because you are ignoring the second half of the present moment, the response to your shot. And so most players are looking at the individual shot that they just played when they look up. In fact, most of us will take that 1.5 seconds left in the present moment and use it to judge our shot, whether it was good or bad, in or out. It's our opinion, but we're in a state of judgment there, okay? Instead, we want to use that second half of the present moment to look up at our opponent and see how they are responding to our shot. Because looking up at our opponent after we play a shot will allow us to use that second half of the present moment to get in position to receive our opponent's responding shot back to us. And so if we are playing two shot sequ- the two-shot sequencing method, which is the antidote to ISM, individual shot making, two-shot sequencing will keep our thoughts and our attention within the entire present moment 
which is two to 2.5 seconds. Well, we, we discussed around that, but, but putting it that way, that's quite jaw-dropping. I've, um, that, that's, <laughs> that's why I'm lost for words on that one, because I'm actually processing what you're saying here. You're gonna, we're going to need to come back to this point again, because I don't think people understand the implications of ISM, because it's, it's woven into um, our tennis thinking. So it's, a, it's a wicked, wicked thing. It is. It's diabolical. It is. And sometimes we say, like, well, it's wicked good. I'm not saying, like, wicked good here. I'm saying, like, it's it's just, it's sneaky. It's sneaky. It steals your attention away from that second half of the present moment. That, that moment, that time in that moment when your opponent is running to the ball, reaching for the ball, or setting up for your shot. But people don't understand that, I think, including mm. the listeners, that you will, I think you were one of the first to define the present moment. Let's go. <laughs> let's do this thing. Let's, this keep, like, let's keep going because we're still, we're still learning um, stuff, Dan. Here we go. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. But then to say, like, the second half of the present moment. That's whoa. crazy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for that. So, really, what, what are the implications then? Um, for the with the ISM approach, if we could look at it critically, what are the implications for a player's game, uh, both their stability and the continuity? Okay, there is absolutely no continuity between shots with an ISM approach. There's no relationship. It's just one shot at a time and it's over. The reason is that there is a lack of legacy between shots, what I just did versus what just happened. And so let's, I'll give you an example. Mm. If I'm solely playing individual shots, one at a time, I'm failing to calculate my expectation of the responding shot back to me from my opponent. And this has consequences, mainly the consequence of not being ready to receive my opponent's shot with the best or most efficient movement or my shot selection on my next shot. And so my game at that point lacks stability, which means it lacks the reliable reaction to my opponent's shots. It also lacks the dependable shot selection options when I play individual shots instead of two-shot sequencing. And so how can I make good judgments with regards to shot selection if I'm not even looking up at my opponent after I play my shot? If I'm playing my shot and I just look at my shot and start judging it, there's no way I can make good judgments with regards to shot selection because I'm not even looking at my opponent. And so individual shot making is a total focus on myself executing the perfect shot. It traps my concentration on that one shot instead of expanding my concentration to include my opponent's responding shot back to me. So that's how the stability, continuity and stability play out, right? I've got to have continuity between two shots. 
I must understand there's a legacy there. What I did affects what my opponent did. There's the legacy and then how I respond next after that. And then there's a stability that two-shot sequencing creates because it's the antidote to one shot at a time. It's two-shot sequencing back-to-back in relationship and the nuances that go along with that. We're going to go way deeper into this, but that's it so far. So that brings that uh, section uh, to, a, to a close. But this, what I want to do just to briefly dwell upon this idea of stability and continuity, because that's what Chapter 4 is based on. You've introduced, um, you've added another uh, more depth to it by looking at it in terms of the legacy of sh- shop legacy. So this shot stability and continuity. But I think the reason I really wanted to address this question of stability and continuity in chapter four, because no one else has. It it became very interesting to me over time how the relationship between points was so important. But I think a lot of competitors really appreciate this idea of stability and continuity with and it's something that, that, that can anchor them in, in in the game because otherwise it is random chaotic and you're prone to emotion you know what's interesting about that is mm-hmm. i was just watching another match at the australian open and i will mention i was it was another girls a uh, ladies match and i will mention it was it was coco playing i guess uh Kustruf. she's from um uh, the Ukraine. Anyway, I don't really know. I don't know who won the match because I, I shut it off after Coco lost the second. But the first set was very interesting. Coco went down 5-1. Well, I noticed when I was watching, like, she's really unstable in her emotions. She's just kind of all over the place. And, and I go, why is that? So I started looking at her shot selection. Man, it was all over the place. She was, she was hitting A, she, she was hitting D, she was hitting B, lots of A's and B's, which played right into her opponent's forehand, which was her opponent's strongest shot and what she really wanted to hit. And so Coco's like all over the place and her, her emotions were very just erratic. And then all of a sudden she's down one five. What does she do? And I'm not sure if she actually, I don't know if she did this instinctively. I don't know whether you know, her coaches are telling her they rehearsed this in practice. I'm not sure. But here's what I saw. I saw a player shift from being erratic and all over the plate with the shots to literally serving and then or returning and then pounding C, just hitting almost every shot into C or at least 80% of her shots into section C, which is basically the, the middle, the um, the inside section of ad court. So you have CD make up ad court. So she's hitting the C. She what is hitting the wide jump. Every now and then it would go into D. I saw a player go from completely erotic, just all over the place, unstable, to this completely stable player, just playing to that spot and then looking to go away from that when she had the opportunity. When she had a little bit shorter ball, she could go into A. Her whole attitude changed. She stopped looking at her box. She started just got the poker face on. She started moving from point to point. She comes back all the way down from 1-5, wins the first set in a tiebreaker. I think it was like 
eight, six or something like that. But I saw how she stabilized her shot selection to a more boring shot selection. Lots of C's, the what I call the Djokovic patterns, right? Or the Novak does this probably better than anyone. You know, he just pounds the ball into C, whether it's a backhand or forehand, until A opens up. And so it was very interesting. Then she started off a little bit like that in the second. And then all of a sudden, what does she do? She goes back to this sort of random shot selection, going to A and B way too much, feeding into her opponent's forehand, who her opponent loved that shot, and she ends up losing the second. And I I went like this. I turned to my wife because I was literally like calling out where she should hit the ball, Coco, in the first set. I was calling out, hit it to C. She hit to C. Do it again. And my wife's like, you are nuts. And I go, watch. And every time I'd call out, Coco would win the point. And every time she did something that I said, don't do, right before she did it, she lost the point. And I'm not saying I'm Nostradamus or anything, but I I know how this works because we've done this for over a decade with just junior players. And we're talking about professional players here, but but it's crazy. So I just went, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to watch the third set because enough energy has come out of me. At this point in in the thing, uh, watching the match, but it was fascinating to me to see how the shifts in her demeanor was directly connected with going away from ISM and moving more toward two shot sequencing. That yeah, thanks for that example. I will check that match out myself <clears throat> today. Um, be interesting to see um, if I can make the same predictions that you can, Nostradamus. There you um, <laughs> So moving on to section four, localized and stable errors. Stunning, I'd like to ask you, how can data analytics help identify patterns in a player's errors? Okay, so the primary primary statistic, the primary statistic is to locate error in a match is point rally length. That's the primary statistic. It's the first statistic that IBM put up on the screen in 2015 at the Australian Open. It's the first piece of sort of new data analytic that IBM presented on. Can the we be a bit more specific there? Because I think um, I think so, we could. Uh, so we, we, what we're referring to PRL is a an art of winning data analytics category. It is that we first and and the yeah and, and there are five of them that we that we developed yes. um, for perhaps. Because of the tennis score, uh, sit beside that. So yeah, so there's there's five of those categories, and what you're saying is that that first appeared, or the the, the first one that we used, point rally length or PRL, first appears in 2015 at the same event that you were just describing at the Australian Open. Yes, correct. correct. Right. And so we first identify when in the point did the error occur? On what shot did the error occur? for you or for your opponent. And so now we can direct our attention to which one of the shots in the two-shot pattern, either the first shot or the second shot in the pattern, that the error occurred on. And so we have the first strike patterns, which are the first two shots you play of the point. And then the next two shots you play, that's called the patterns of play phase of the point. 
So for example, if you are serving and the point rally length is four shots, we know that you lost the point. The return player won the point. It's an even number, one, two, three, four. Shot five was missed. That means that the error was made on your S2, the second shot after the serve, right? The fifth shot of the point. That's where the error was made. Now, the question now is, was your S2 error, was it a forehand? Was it a backhand? Was the, was, was the player, you as the player, were you inside the court when you played that S2 or were you behind the baseline? What type of shot did you play? And where did the error occur? Was it in the net? Was it wide or was it deep? Now, these are all data point, data statistics that you can, that you can uh, map. Now, we can determine whether the error was a shot selection error or a technical movement error. And my experience is the former leads to the latter. For mm-hmm. example, for, yeah. for example, the most errors are decision errors where a player is behind the baseline and say they're behind the baseline in zone C, that's on the ad court. They play a power drive down the line to A, to zone A of their opponent's court, instead of playing like a shape fade back to zone C. Now, the shape fade is a heavy topspin, or, or let's say this, this is a heavy topspin drive back cross court, the, the shape fade. And so inside, okay, so if we play, did we play a flat, what some people call a flat ball to zone A, a low driving ball out of C down the line, or do we play that heavy ball back cross court, right? On this S2 that we made the error, right? So now it's not impossible to drive a ball down the line from C to A, but from behind the baseline, but it has a lower percentage of hurting your opponent than say playing a shot that sort of neutralizes your opponent that goes back heavy cross court from zone C to zone C, and then wait for a slower or shorter ball to attack to A. But without the data, it's practically impossible to accurately identify which shot, in this case, the first shot of patterns of play sequence that the error was made on. And so if you identify it this way, it leads you to ask better questions other than just blame the error on technique. You know, my forehand's not working or it just didn't work in that point. It's like, wait a minute. It's, it's more than technique. Okay. It's a lot more than technique. That's how you can, you know, start to use the data analytics to identify sort of patterns or even shot selection to, to, to determine or diagnose the error. So why the, the stages of first strike patterns of play and extended rally crucial in understanding the occurrence of error? Because it locates the error so you can strong problem frame and determine a more accurate answer to the problem. We talked about the problem in the last podcast, Mm -hmm. right? So when you locate the error, it demystifies the error as random, evasive, and chaotic. Yeah. You will be able to determine, for example, whether a player is consistently missing the first shot of patterns of play stage, which is if you're serving, that's the that's the third shot you hit, the S2, 
or you're, you're locating that. And let's say it's more than any other location in the sequence, right? You're missing the first shot of your second two shot sequence. And you're doing that a lot more than any other shot. So I really see this shot missed among juniors a lot. So they, what they do is they set up their first strike point sequence very well. And then they go, they try to go for it on their S2, their first shot of their patterns of play sequence. Right? Traditionally called the third shot. Yeah, which is the yep. third shot or the R2, the second shot after the return. Yep. So it's the third shot. And they're just pulling the trigger, for example, just too soon in the point. Right Now, this could be because they have maybe a low shot tolerance or that they feel like they need to press their opponent hard before they are pressured themselves. It could simply just be a zone location or a wear error right? Where you're hitting it, you need to adjust where you hit it, as well as a shot selection error. Maybe you're, like I said, in the example, in the last question, you're hitting a low driving ball down the line off a deep ball that you're behind, you're both your feet are behind the baseline. And and that's really, you're not really doing a whole lot to a good player because they're just going to run it down. It's actually going to be in their strike zone when they get there. Instead of hitting this heavy, you know, ball back cross court. This sort of neutralizes or levels out the point. And so you can attack many different ways. However, there's a probability statistic attached to every shot. And based on where your feet are, they're either in the, in the court or outside the court when you strike the ball. And then what type of ball are you receiving? Right. This is why I'm not a huge fan of like a lot of rat, a lot of racket fed balls from the coach to the player in practice because typically a coach feeds the ball in the player strike zone more often than not right and there's not a lot of randomness no. and if you're feeding random that's much better but that's typically not what is seen on the traditional practice court it's a ball that's just dropped right in the player strike zone and they feel great and it produces that safe space everything we've talked about before so the first step to localize the error is by mapping which phase of the point that the error is occurring in. Yes. So I want now to turn to, in this next section, section five, on the what I call the misdiagnosis of error, and that's the term I use in chapter four. And so what are the, some common misdiagnosis of error? Can you give me some examples in traditional tennis culture? And I know this is going to be amusing. So um, okay. prepare yourself. Okay. It's your technique. It's your movement. Those are the first two. They're the typical, they're the typical responses of blame. They're either first or second in that order. And that's the that's traditional tennis culture. I mean, I was I was caught up in that too, right? And so are you. It's something we're, yeah. you know, it it's we're offering a, a new solution. Right. We're offering a, a new perspective on this. Right. It's the easiest assessment to make because it's the most visual. Look, their, their forehand broke technique broke down. Look at that. Oh, they didn't get to the ball. Look, they were stretched and they were late getting to the ball. It's so the we're, most yeah, visual. We're offering the um, new diagnostic tools, essentially. Right. Right. You can, you can diagnose but, it. We're offering, well, I, you, I think a very good way of describing it is the antidote. And that's the treatment for that. But that's an, that's an open-ended question. That's where we have to work with the player. 
right in, in that in that treatment zone we i can't do it once you know once i've identified an error so what <laughs> yes yes but i can't then just go to my player well i'm just announcing what your error is that's what traditional tennis culture does doesn't it right in, in misdiagnosis i have diagnosed you with the problem of your movement between right. x uh, you know point a and b in the court is you know is poor is that that that's what I experience, and that that's what I see. It's very heavy-handed misdiagnosis. Yes, and well, the more the, the worse it's misdiagnosed, the more the more the people misdiagnosing, I the coach believes what they're talking about, and you get the poor players sitting there going, "Oh yeah, okay, okay, right." Well, this is what we see happening because that's what we are looking for the most, mm. right? Does the player's technique? hold up throughout the point are they moving well throughout the entire point okay but then that does lead me because this is this is quite uh, obviously quite um i don't know fraught section this one because it's got a lot you know this misdiagnosis problem um it it, you know it annoys me as much as it does you but there is a positive um, solution to it how can focusing solely though on the technical aspects how can that be actually be detrimental Okay, we know here we are. We're, we're discussing that maybe it. Well, we know it's prioritized in the wrong way. In other words, that's put down as the work and focus of coaching player. So, what is it though that um, this sole focus um, or this making it salient, putting it in front of us all the time? Right. How can that? How can that actually be detrimental to a player's development? Well. Couple things. When when traditional tennis traditional tennis culture identifies first that it's a technique, it's not that the identity is necessarily wrong because that yeah. could be very. But what I'm saying is though that by identifying it first, it misprioritizes when it's done, absence absent of the context of when it happened in the point. So, for example, the most classic misdiagnosed error in tennis is the return of serve. And so a player will miss a return and the observer of the match, whether it be the parent, the coach, the commentator, or the spectator is going to say they missed a forehand. Well, that's true. However, it wasn't a forehand, just a forehand. It was a return of serve forehand and it happened on the due side of the court. And was it a first serve return or was it a second serve return error? You know, did the return miss in the net or wide or deep, right? But not only that, what was the score? You know, was it 15 all? Was it 30 love? Was it 0 30? But not just the game score. What was the momentum score? 1 0, 0 1, 2 0. So um, all of these are, are factors of this missed forehand. So, so if we focus solely on the technical aspects, right, how can it be detrimental? Well, by focusing solely on the technical aspect of the error, the player's left to believe that the antidote to reducing this error is repetition of that shot. Yeah. And that repetition is typically without specific context. It's usually this. I need to be more consistent on my forehand or my backhand or my serve. Well, which forehand, which backhand or which serve? Like a vague assumption of these is the biggest enemy to improving your technique. So specificity is the key to properly diagnosing the problem. It could simply be a shot selection error. That's a mental and emotional error. It's not a technical one. Misdiagnosing errors 
is what's detrimental to a player's development. We are, we are having good intentions as coaches and parents and helping our players improve their performance, but good intentions without proper context is worthless. In fact, it's worse. It's worse than worthless. It's catastrophic to a player's mental and emotional state of competitive play. And you can have, I think you can make a very good case for saying, and it's why it's relevant to the title of this podcast, stability and continuity isn't possible. Correct. Which brings me neatly to uh, number section number six. In I wanted to just turn to data analytics in tennis. And my first question would be, in what ways has data analytics transformed the approach to error diagnosis in tennis? Well, data analytics is the science of winning. Reading the data and determining how the, tr- how the transformation of the practice court, right? Reading the data and determining the transformation of the practice court is the art of winning. So you have the data analytics is the science. And then how you read it and determine how the practice course is going to be transformed, that's the art of winning. And if you are able to identify a location as far as when and where the error occurred, this can lead to better questions being asked and answered. The traditional tennis approach is typically just too vague. It's my forehand. It's my backhand. I need to hit more balls to that target. Without the context of what kind of ball you are receiving, are you receiving a heavy driving loop? Are you receiving a power draw, a power fade? The error is most often misdiagnosed. That's what happens. So the art of winning approach, in contrast, is contextualized by data. So the analytics are determined by the specific shots received and what zone the player's feet are were located in when they played the shot, and where our players selected to send the ball into their opponent's court. The most important way data analytics has transformed the approach to error diagnosis is when the momentum score system is used. And so the momentum score will determine the win probability percentage at the beginning of the point so that a player can decide on the highest win percentage first strike sequence yeah. To begin the point for them, right? What is their experience? I'm going to give you a real life example. So I was working with Michael Moe. He's on the ATP tour. I'm not sure if he's still in the top 100, but he was or, or late last year. And I was show he was in town and he's playing a, a tournament, a challenger tournament. Actually, this is when he was 122 in the world and he's trying to break into that top 100. And so I was showing him, I mapped one of his, I mapped his semifinal match and of this tournament. And I was showing him his first strike win percentages when he was up or down in the momentum score. And this was particular when he was serving. And so his first strike serve locations, and then where he hit his S1 after he received the return. So this was very helpful to him going into the finals of that tournament. And he was versing a top, a former top 10 player in the world. So what was interesting to me is that when I sat down in his box and watch the finals, watch him play the finals. When he won a big point, he would turn to me and put up his finger up sideways to his head as if to say, it's all here in my mind, coach. I know where I need to hit the serve and I know where I need to hit the S1 when, and I know I'm playing it based on the momentum score, right? 
So his opponent was, was so confused. I was sitting sometimes I was where I was sitting. He was right there returning and I could hear his opponent getting frustrated and even angry. And what's really interesting is when what he was saying to himself, he started talking, his opponent started talking to himself and he was saying stuff like, man, how bad is my forehand today? And he just literally like spit out that traditional tennis response of it's my forehand. And I was thinking, no, it's not your forehand, bro. It's your forehand on the ad serve when Michael rips that heavy kick into position seven and you're a lefty and you don't know what to do with it. And that's what was happening. And so based on the statistics and the, uh, that we went through the night before, Michael and I, he was able to strategically put the serve in a certain place on ad court when he needed that next point and sort of either jam up his lefty opponent or bring him out wide. And then once the return came back, he was like, I know where I'm going. And he just pounded the next ball into that zone. And it was one of the, was one of the coolest revelations. You know, when you're, when you're working with a player at that high level, you want to share data that's very simple, that's very concise, because they are able to take those little nuggets like this and really run with it because you're dealing already with a very competitively intelligent player. They wouldn't be competitive. They, they wouldn't be on tour and that close in top 100 if they weren't competitive intelligent. So as an analyst like myself, you have to be very, say, specific, but very, you know, how should I say? What's the word I'm trying to use? Not cautious, but you need to be empathetic in a way to what the player already knows and where they are. And um, I was able to do it with him and it was, it was a really cool experience. And um, he was very appreciative. So it was really cool. And how does this, this change a player's approach to practice and match play? Well, the first change that occurs is that it creates a stable mindset yeah. with respect to making better shot selection decisions. So, the stability you're talking about then is, is maybe a higher order stability. So, we're talking about a stability between the match, the match, yes, the data analytics, so the, anal- the analysis, post match analysis, and then the practice court, and then back to the match. Yes. So, yeah, so we've got that linear stability. Yes. And we, we don't want to make mistake that with, um, you know, it providing the right answers all the time. Right. You know, that's not what we're talking about because it's a process. It is a process. I mean, look, data analytics changes the approach to practice by properly diagnosing why errors are occurring in your match because now you can ask better questions with regards to why you decided to play a certain shot at a particular time in the point, because you have the data. Hey, I'm missing my S1. I'm missing my S2. Okay, that's a particular time in the point. So you're identifying that. So you can start asking and having this conversation with your player about some more specifics. For example, you know, you can ask the player, you know, why did you go so aggressive on your S1 when you're up in the momentum score 2-0? That's a very specific question, right? Now you can go and rehearse better patterns in point play and practice being up 2-0 in the momentum score. 
And this decision is now based more on the win percentage probability than an emotionally charged decision that was based on the threat of losing your serve or even losing the set. So that's how you can change the approach. It's it's the it's analyzing the data is what changes the approach. It's where it begins. That's where the process begins. And then you have to flesh out the answers with more intelligent questions based on more intelligent information. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. So finally, in this next section, I want to look at stability, continuity, and practice. What strategies can be employed to develop stability and continuity in a player's game? So the strategy on the practice court that will best reflect the match court is to rehearse two-shot patterns and combinations. Mm. You rehearse these in the first strike of the phase of the point and the patterns of play phase of the point. And by using the art of winning first strike and momentum games, the competitive intelligence games that we've created here, as a player and a coach, you're going to experience something totally different and unique, and it's going to be transformative in your future practices. So as a player, you will develop a stable headspace where you can now base your decisions on momentum scoring probability instead of an emotionally charged state of mind, say. Rehearsing first strike and patterns of play sequences builds continuity between from shot to shot. And so now there's a relationship that develops between your shots because you are looking up to your opponent and you're now aware of what types of shots that they're playing back to you. So how are they reacting to your first strike pattern? When you were down zero two in the momentum score, you're playing, you're starting the point from adcore. So competitive intelligence games are based on the data analytics and it's the key to accelerating your performance on the practice court. Uh, so why is it important then to focus on opponent-centric strategies during practice? The main reason is that how the match is played is opponent-centric. <clears throat> so your strategy in a match is to confuse and then maybe frustrate, <coughs> excuse me, and hopefully break down completely your opponent's mental and emotional state of being. So this can only be done with a strategic plan in place to mm-hmm. follow. So rehearsal of these strategic plans must be done on the practice court. If all you're doing is repeating your shots over and over again with an attempt to get it perfect in your mind, you are failing to plan strategically. When you avoid rehearsing first strike and patterns of play two-shot sequencing, it's going to be replaced with pointless repetition of forehand, backhands, volleys, serves, without the proper context of point play. Mm -hmm. And so what you want to occur in practice is to develop your competitive intelligence by rehearsing these first strike and patterns of play shot combinations in the context of the games, the competitive intelligence games that we created here at The Art of Winning. And so they are the best way to stay focused on opponent-centric strategies that give you the highest probability of winning more points consecutively throughout your match. Yeah. Well, look, that's been a fascinating discussion on many levels. And I think you're, uh, I particularly enjoyed your analysis of what happens in 
in the two stages of the present moment. I'm not going to forget that one in a hurry. <laughs> Sterling, yeah, it's been it, your expertise on this is really coming uh, to fruition here in in these podcasts, and I'm I'm sure our listeners are going to really start benefiting benefiting from uh, your knowledge. I mean, to recap what we have been discussing, we've looked at the important aspects of all the threats to stability and continuity in the context of wanting to establish continuity and stability as a a response, maybe an antidote or certainly a treatment for the problems that that, that players face. And the first one of those is the, the attitude towards error that players and coaches have or the traditional tennis culture encourages in people. And then having a look at uh, the nature and problems of, of, of ISM. So I think this chapter four, we've, we've kind of extended out from what we've written in the book. And that's a good thing, I think. But I do absolutely implore you to read the book and that chapter four in particular. It's not got the most glamorous of titles, I'll confess. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly going to be a an enhancement for uh, to your game, and I want you, I want people to try out these different processes. And for that, we've got a number of options open to you, and something where you can you can purchase at a very reasonable price, not just the book, but we have the courses coming out. Inside those courses, wrapped within them, are the individual games and. You know, we're looking at developing now our community of players to really lift lift the veil of traditional tennis culture and to look at the really exciting and dynamic world that tennis data analytics can can open up to you. So please, yes, yeah, subscribe to the podcast. Absolutely, we've got we've got. A, I even give you a free um, code so that you can download the audible version of the book and that's been going really well you know people are buying this book man it's only been it's only been a couple of months um and it's out there it's getting in the system it's getting in the in in the thinking and that's where exactly where we want it to be okay so please do that and i look forward to hearing from you um or (laughs) talking to you and hearing from you next wednesday thank you very much sterling thank you dan